Hello everybody and welcome to episode 4 of season 2 of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular Sequelizers. The team formerly known as Street Sharks. True, true. Matthew Stogden. Hi, welcome back. We missed you. And Tom Martin. I know Kung Fu. And, of course, the Plowman Ashen Experience, Mr. Alec Plowman. I was saying Boerns. Ah, <laughs> uh, n- now I understand why your pitch was so off tone. <laughs> Wait, this isn't The Simpsons Reloaded? Yeah. <laughs> and Mr. Stuart Ashen. Whoa. Yeah. Hey, Yay. there we go. I was debating between saying whoa or the other one, so uh, it's a good job. We did it, a team. Let's go home. There's a hint from some, but not all, of the sequelizers <laughs> <laughs> as to what this episode could possibly be about. I wanted to do my own thing, damn it. And you did, Alec. It's not about. It's not. I mean, you could argue we could do The Simpsons from like season eight onwards. Oh, needs God, to be seen. Have we got six months to do a podcast? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll do an entire season of just Simpsons episodes. But before we get to that, <gasps> in this episode, it's probably the single most requested thing. Yeah, ev- everybody I know yeah, yeah. when I mention like, oh, hey, I'm doing a podcast about fixing bad sequels. Everybody goes, "Can you fix the Matrix Reloaded, please?" I'm like, "Yes, we can. Yeah. We're going to do that." Today, in season two, episode four. You better believe it. We do listen, internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we do listen. We just like to. We like to be a bit of a tease and, and make you listen to nearly a season and a half before we do it. But you know, that's that's marketing. So there we are. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we can all agree that the Matrix, the original Matrix, is an all-time classic. It's all right. How oh, dare God you, Alec Plowman? I'm just, I'm just being a troll. I really like surprise, it. surprise. What's new? And it really was kind of revelatory and pun intended revolutionary at the time the special effects and the tone of the whole thing it had this kind of weird neo-noir science fictiony thing going on that kind of wasn't happening very well there was lots of leather coats and stuff going on with films like blade and things and like dark that, city as well dark mm. city oh, dark made her influence because obviously dark city. yeah because yeah, really, all the all the sets being the same thing yeah, mm. yeah exactly the first film came out in 1999 which was kind of a a weird time. Everybody's worried about like the Y two K bug and the the internet's a thing, but it's not quite a thing as we know it today. And there's this kind of half technological world not quite there yet. And I think the Matrix came out at the right time to kind of play on that and really kind of it really rode that zeitgeist. Yeah. It was the evolution of the Terminator argument. Machines are coming to get to you. But rather than being a humanoid machine that's going to punch you in the face, it's like, no, 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 no. The machines you're using right now, the ones that you use to bank with, that kind of thing, which no one's banking with at the time, but, the, you know, it was always implying that, oh, everyone does this. And it's like, no, we're not using MIDI discs for anything. Thank you. That kind of thing. And it was, yeah, the, the fear of what was coming online. And then, wait a minute, you might be online. Because I was 15 when The Matrix came out. And... It had a combination of comics and anime and just really dark, gritty kung fu films and, and noir stuff. And just everything mashed into one. I was like, this is coolness personified. Everything 15-year-old Matt <laughs> yeah. did in his life. And what's life. that? Some philosophy under the whole thing? Fuck yes. Baudrillard. <laughs> yeah. Simu- like a simulation, motherfucker. So yeah, I, I really love the shit out of it. And then, most importantly, I turned 19 and The Matrix Reloaded came out and went, hang on, I have some problems. 
I think it's an interesting thing because the uh, the original Matrix was very much under the radar, and then it comes to DVD, and just as that format is taking off, it gets huge. It does reasonably well in the cinema. It did pretty damn well at the box office, actually. It had a had a budget of like sixty million dollars and made nearly five hundred million. But it so. went massive then on DVD. It did, yeah. It, it became the classic. At one stage of the UK, it was actually illegal to own a DVD player and not a copy of The Matrix. And But the police would actually deliver one to you if you yep. didn't have one. I remember the advert. Yeah. It's, it was just a I think it was just a fantastic I mean 1999 is a really good year for films with the exception of The Phantom Menace but like that and Fight Club I always think are like just two two of my favourite films two standout films yeah, that really two of my favourite films of all time from the 90s um, yeah. and, and are just really kind of on that kind of cusp of the, the new two, two films they, that very much don't feel like 90s movies not at all. That came out no that's what I was about to well. say they're, they're very much on the cusp of a new millennium and feel very prescient in, in what they, they kind of predict or what the, they, they kind of say um, and they just the matrix i remember being such a almost like a rite of passage amongst i mean people me and alex age you know you, you i saw it i think probably would have been about 2001 2002 sort of been about 11 or 12 um and yeah it was just like it, it it just blew me away in terms of just i'd never seen anything quite like it i remember watching it fairly early because our um one of our friends dads worked for phillips and worked on their distribution of dvd players so we got all the stuff from america before it came out over here so i remember him getting the matrix dvd and that being a, a big deal. It should be pointed out that the cultural footprint as well was intense. Oh my god! Because gosh. everyone parodied it, everyone um, pastiched it, everything was done, and it was always like long coats, sunglasses, cool ass phones, flips, slow work, motion, slow motion. The, the bullet time, bullet time thing time. so tr- transcended that film. And but is here's the fascinating thing, thing, and this is the thing that I find so fascinating to this day: is it that, was all a dream <laughs> is in the, the Matrix? To the is that you don't see like. Even when Star Wars went underground a bit in the in in the nineties and arguably post the prequels, you would still have Star Wars fandom trickling on. I don't think I've ever met someone that is like I'm a Matrix fan. There's never been that continuation since. I've there, met a lot of them, I'm afraid. And there there certainly was circa around ninety nine two thousand as well. But, I think. But my point being is that it's yeah. not it, for something that had such a huge cultural impact less than you know twenty years ago. There's there's nothing. It's the same as Avatar. Like Avatar being this huge, huge thing. And then like, can you actually? I I can't honestly say that I've met someone that's like, oh, I'm a huge Avatar fan. Do you no, see that, what I mean? That's just Avatar. But I think the main reason the Matrix isn't like that is because the second and third films burn exactly, those bridges. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You say like, oh, yep. I'm a huge fan of the Matrix, but only the first one. You have to specify like, I still don't like Reloading. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the Matrix, but not even I like Reloading Revolutions. Yeah, it is such a. We should then talk about this and why it was such a major uh, nosedive in oh, terms of... Oh, God, was it? I was working at PC World with lots of technical people, so we were all super excited for another Matrix film. And, yeah, there's a couple of really good action sequences in it. That's it. <laughs> you know? Th- those ghosts were cool, though. <laughs> were they? For five minutes. Being too uh, technically too young to go and see it, still, I snuck into the cinema to watch it. Oh, you're Matrix. such a yeah. badass. I remember being bitterly disappointed by that movie. Really? Really um, watching it and just c- c- uh, coming out of that film. I think it was also because at this point, um, one of the guys who I was good friends with was like a proper film nerd. He was a 13-year-old whose favourite film was Magnolia. Oh. And we, wow, okay. Legitimate badass there. And we came out of the movie and I think everybody else was like, hey, that was fun. And we were like, no, that was dog shit. What we just watched was dog shit. 
it, it always it, it, it i watched it recently in preparation and in my mind's eye i was like okay i fucking hate revolutions it's shit but reloaded revolutions is worse <laughs> yeah Re- sure. revolutions is awful because hey in a film that's called the matrix revolutions hardly any of it takes place in the matrix which is the interesting bit anyway but like we'll reloaded yeah we'll get to that reloaded i always had in my mind i was like actually you know yeah it's not as good but there's some good bits and actually i have a sweet a sort of a bit of a soft spot for it I watched it again recently. I was like, holy fuck, has it aged badly? Like, the bits that were terrible at the time have aged dreadfully. And the bits that I remember being, yeah, that's a pretty good action sequence. Watched it going, oh, God. Like, it just is a mess. The thing is, we talk about the cultural footprint of The Matrix, the original one. It still visually holds up really nicely. It's still a really decent film because it's mostly practical effects and the visual stuff is mostly in, in camera. But the sequels do not. And the thing is, my experience with The Matrix Reloaded was really strange because... I, in this country at least, Enter the Matrix, the the video game, the time video game, was released before the film yes, came it was. out. And so featured I, all like, Niobe and all the characters. Exactly, yeah. Niobe, and Ghost and, and sort of stuff, Sparks, yeah. I want to say. Yep. And I really enjoyed it, arguably. But then the problem was I saw these little you know, bits and pieces that sort of tie into the film and think, this is great. That's really impressive VFX sequences and like really really cool CGI in this um in the oh sorry a, a full motion video sequence in the in the uh, in the game and then realizing oh no that's the film and um, and so you see the bit with the, with the trucks <laughs> yeah it's when you think the trucks smash into each other I'm like because obviously you're gonna get part of the story in the game from Niobe's side of it where she's driving up and uh, you know there's a little car chase and I was like oh it ties in rather cleverly not just a random shitty you know usual um, afterthought of a video game. And you're watching it and thinking, oh, this is okay for, a, for you know, for filmed for a game. And then you see it in the cinema and I saw it again and thought, oh, no, it's still shit. I still hate it. I hate it more now. The first one was so important in terms of special effects and kind of blowing everyone's minds of what they did. And not just the slow motion, but the way everything was represented in the, yeah. like, the giant pods with all the people and all the, the weird kind of futury stuff as well. And then the second one looks like absolute garbage. And it's interesting, I actually researched why that was, um, because I, because it's, all of those sequences are dreadful. And actually what, uh, what it basically boils down to is in the first film, obviously all of the bullet time effects are done, if you don't know how it's done, it's by lots of stills cameras in a, in a loop around and those are all then uh, strung together. And the backgrounds are done by basically using like photo, I think it's photogrammetry, basically stitching together lots of photos of real locations to provide a virtual 3D backdrop. The issue was, was that the Wachowskis apparently went off and wrote the script and the guy that was in charge of the VFX looked at this and went, there's just no way we can use existing technology to do this. So instead of going, right, we'll work within our means, we use it as a creative limitation, they basically realised that they could adapt and improve the technology they used to make the backgrounds to try and make photorealistic, and I use that in inverted commas in the looser sense of the word, people so they basically adapted that technology and realized they needed to create virtual cameras to film virtual people with. Right, right, so basically yeah, yeah. the first film had a grounding in the people were always real but they were put on virtual backdrops but they tried to invert that technology and i think the thing is is that today of course that is a technology that's used all the time in terms of you know you look at Graham off tarkin and whether that works or not in rogue one it's come a long um, way it's it's it, but it's basically scanning people's faces has come a long way but when you've got to think about it, that's like nearly 15 years ago the technology yeah. just wasn't there and it's so jarring like in the burly brawl the the cuts between it's 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 almost like it night and day cuts between stuff that is actually been filmed uh realistically uh, the stuff that's actually been filmed in reality and the stuff that's completely cg in the computer um and it's yeah it's just a mess basically there's a sequence of many sequences i should say 
in uh, the Bruce Lee classic Game of Death um, that I always really enjoy. So you've obviously got the Pagoda. Everyone remembers the Pagoda where he's got the, unfortunately, what is now known as the Kill Bill outfit. Yeah, even though it's not, it's, it's Bruce Lee's one. But he's going up thing and he's fighting all the very people and it's a great little sequence. But the story they fought, sort of shoehorn in beforehand with the various lookalikes and stuff. And then there's a couple of shots where like, oh no, and they try and sort of, I can't, I don't know what sort of effects we're using at the time, but it's basically just cut around an image and slap it on and say, look, Bruce Lee. And it's like, oh my God, it's terrible. But again, I'm sure at the time it was like, wow, we've replaced his face. How is it possible to do this? This is amazing. And I'm sure at the time they were thinking, my God, look at that. It's a digital man. He's so realistic. And his clothes are all clinging to him somehow. I don't know how that is. <laughs> Perfect fabric physics. Who needs it? He, he looks like he looks like rubber. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's a nice little creation we've made. That looks nothing like anything. The big problem with the burly brawl is as it starts, it's not too bad. It's mostly physical, and then as the scene goes on, it gets more and more CGI. It ends up looking like an Xbox 360 game. It also goes on for so long. Yes, as well. Was it like really six minutes or something it. like that? This, I think, comes back to one of the bigger problems with the Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, because I think you do have to take them as a whole, which is the just the massive amount of bloat. Um, and the idea... Because this was also the start of something that we talked about before with Pirates of the Caribbean, which is the idea of we're not just making one sequel, we're making two sequels back-to-back and then releasing them six months apart because this is the way that we think the industry is working now. And what I think that meant is that they felt like they needed a huge epic story and i also think that the problem is that combined with the ridiculous runtime and the amount of things they want to fit in that you only get half a movie in the matrix reloaded and it stops in the middle um but i think the the other big problem that comes with that is that i think the wachowskis misunderstood what made the matrix so good when they made the second one because the reason the matrix works is it has the philosophical thing which enriches the narrative but the reason that it works is it's a really taut action movie and it's the beats are so tight in that film it's actually really lean it takes a lot from early jim cameron stuff where he was so good at that before he also became a bloat monster (laughs) (laughs) six um, avatar sequels we're getting supposedly or something stupid like that um, i heard 19 Um, but yeah, this, and this is a huge problem with the film, is that the philosoph- the philosophical side of it completely overwhelms it. And and it's clumsy as fuck. Yeah. And also, I think the other issue is that a lot of the really interesting concepts that are introduced in The Matrix Reloaded in a way that you're like, ah, oh, cool, they're kind of introducing it and then they're going to play out, play off on that and kind of that's going to become earned in, in revolutions, are just dropped in revolutions. There's stuff, there's, there's some of the interesting stuff about, you know, are oh, these people from various, from past versions of The Matrix and, and the fact that programs are masquerading as people and all those kind of things, they're just kind of dropped and then it, it just turns into this kind of pseudo-Jesus. Um, I mean, I read somewhere once at the time that I, apparently, and again, it's probably just an unsubstantiated thing but that essentially uh, the Wachowskis had it pointed out to them it's like oh Neo's basically Jesus and then they were like oh yeah he is and what if you and then and then they kind of rewrote a lot of the 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 the, the kind of the the second two films to, to big up on that I think there was also some kind of lawsuit at the time where someone had claimed that they'd stolen a lot of the ideas for for two yes, and three there was, yes. um, from like the kind of religious angle from something that someone else had written. Um, but yeah, that was that was my well. All, main... all the ship names are named after religious things. You got uh, the, there are so many references to biblical um, passages and stuff. I think uh, the, uh, the uh, license plate of Smith's car when he first turns up is a reference to a Bible passage that says, "And behold, a Smith come, becomes and is the waste or whatever it is." So there's all that kind of thing, and that kind of subtlety is nice, but then. That's 
Yeah, but then there's like, oh, by the way, here's what should be Sean Connery. But I'm actually grateful it's not Sean Connery in the in the form of the architect, and it's the dude who his name I can't remember, but he plays the who he voiced the um uh the puppet master in um, Ghost in the Shell. That's why I know his voice. It's like, oh, that guy, anime link. I like it. What is he saying? Oh no! Oh go and therefore oh. behest oh, no. because of. See the thing is, having watched that bit again, like that bit comes a lot, un- under a lot of stick. And actually, what it holds sa- up not so it, bad. It, what he's saying is kind of like, but we didn't go in for that kind of film. Yeah, what he's saying is kind of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But, but it's just so like it's just a massive exposition scene. Like there'd be, there, there's so many different like what he's saying is really interesting and cool once you kind of cut through it and listen to it and really listen to it, which makes it really kind of an, an un, uninteresting watch uh, of a scene. But then it's just it's just presented in such an info dump. It's like why can't you actually write it properly? I, and- I like to think the the architect used to be a combination of Ask Jeeves and a thesaurus, and <laughs> and therefore he has to. Just info dump on you, and it's like, ah, okay. So, can you Google this for me, please? You fucking old bastard. To put it into um, context, uh, I watched the, I rewatched the first Matrix when it first came out with my nan, and my nan is not a reader of Baudrillard. She is a fan of science fiction, but uh, she, um, like, the Matrix is a film that she was like, yep, totally get this. This is great. Really enjoyed it. My nan would not have enjoyed The Matrix Reloaded because it is... And, she hates the Bible. Yeah, well, quite quite the opposite. But um, But I think precisely because it loses... It gets so lost in its grander self sense of itself. The reason that somebody like my nan, who, again, is not a studier of cultural theory, will enjoy... Uh, a movie like The Matrix is because it's a well-written action sci-fi film. The only enjoyment you can get out of The Matrix Reloaded is it's so very deeply philosophical. My my frustration is all the characters seem to shift in terms of tonality of who they are and what they are. And then you've got also the lack of actual consequence of The Matrix itself. Because it comes this massive sort of sandbox playground... I mean, in in the in the first film, the Matrix is a real world environment, and it's terrifying because it's our world. It's what we know. Whereas you see it in the second film, and the green field, and it's not heightened. I've gone back and looked at the same. It's like, oh, and the green matches up, but now I feel like I'm exposed to the green elements, the the, the saturation. I'm like, no, it feels too much, and all that Do you sort mean of stuff. The green matches up from the first film to the second. I think it does mostly, but only because they went back and redid the, oh. second, the first film to make it look like the second yeah. film. Oh, they, they, they recolor timed it. If for you Blu-ray. if you have the original, I've got the the first edition Blu-ray, the colour is completely different. Uh, I didn't remember it being that green. When they brought out the Matrix Revisited, which they were doing while they were prepping the second film, they changed the colour on it to match. God damn it. Bloody hell. Yeah. They George Lucas. George Lucas thing, yeah. yeah. Which again, it sounds like this is the thing. This really is a George Lucas because ultimately you're you don't understand what was popular about it in the first place. You've changed it and made it boring and philosophical and assholey. You've altered the original to make it work for you what you've followed up with it you've got a load of peripheral things that shouldn't matter that arguably are interesting concepts but didn't work out in lucas's case toys you had a really cringeworthy romantic bit where the, with one of the least sexy sex scenes ever created by man oh zion i mean reloaded it's basically a bloated action film where the cgi stuff isn't very good i think the, the actual kung fu the people on people oh, stuff no, still the, has the, the, chateau, the chateau yes yeah the exactly. chateau flight is fantastic so, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. fantastic soundtrack as well i love the soundtrack yeah, still and then all we Rob get Duncan. into um, revolutions where uh, yeah, it's all about Zion that nobody gives a shit about because it's boring mud pile 
and it's, nobody it's cares. And robo squids and who gives a and fuck go, about and any people of go stuff. blind and then people die. There was only and... one bit I went in the cinema. I went, wow, that's impressive at the time, and I probably still feel the same way because on a big screen, watching when the machines finally tunnel through and do that huge sprawling thing, yes. I'm like, wow, that is a lot of CGI, and that wow, and that, that was the only wow moment in a film that should have been all wow all the time. It still doesn't sound positive. <laughs> it's not the original Matrix, which is a comparatively very low tech film, is wow moments all the way through exactly. it. Exactly. time you watch it. Yeah, from a narrative point of view, from a visual point of yeah. view, from a, an emotional point of view. And it feels, and that's the thing, it stands up, going back to the CG thing, watching it again, it's one of those films where, it's a bit like Jurassic Park, where the CG just, like the special effects just stand up. Like it doesn't, it feels so, like there's, there's very few parts of it. Everything feel, works hand in hand and complements yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. It is quite a, a timeless movie, the first one, in a way that the second one feels very much of its time. It's also hamstrung by like little details like so much product placement and things like that, which in a movie of the kind that it is feels entirely inappropriate. But I mean, it's no iRobot like, hey, these are some... 2004 Converse, Fuck but off. it's it is still kind of like, hey, you can buy the Samsung flip phone that Morpheus is I using. Think they saw like ten thousand of them and sold out almost immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although that original Nokia from the from the um, first film, god damn, that's an amazing phone. I really wish I still. Oh. I had a cheap case for my 3310 that had a little spring off yeah. key cover, oh. and I gave it to my friend, and he went canoeing. And it fell into the Wensum. So, if anybody wants to go fishing for that, if it hasn't <laughs> biodegraded over the last twenty years, thirty-three yeah. tens are fully indestructible, right? It's, they're they're famously indestructible. Yeah, the case won't be. The battery might even still be charged at this point. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's still fishing. There's the one Wensum. way to find out, guys. Equalizer spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> if some reason you made the correct decision and not watched the follow-up, and only you've seen the first Matrix. Allow me to give you a quick little synopsis of Matrix Reloaded. It's actually set six months after the events of the first Matrix, despite being released four years later. Neo is basically proven as a kind of good luck charm to all the humans, and more people are being brought to Zion, and they kind of establish this Zion thing as the one last stronghold of humanity as the, for the resistance and things like this, and yeah, that's that's a huge problem. Anyway... Neo himself has discovered his superpowers, including super speed, the ability to see codes of things inside the Matrix, and a kind of like future vision precognition thing as well. He can also throw a uh, cling film uh, Neo symbol from his chest. Yes. <laughs> but, uh... He also pulls bullets out of people. Yes, pulls but morphs. I don't into know how Matrix wireframe fisting. bullet fisting. <laughs> That's the title of the episode: wireframe fisting. Yep, I'm on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. (laughs) But a nasty piece of news hits the human resistance. A quarter of a million machine sentinels are digging down to Zion, and they're going to reach them in the next 72 hours. As Zion prepares for the ultimate war, Neo, Morpheus, and Trinity are advised by the Oracle to find the Keymaker, who would help them reach the Source. Meanwhile, Neo's recurrent dreams depicting Trinity's death have got him worried, and if that wasn't enough, it actually says that in the synopsis. Agent Smith has somehow escaped deletion and has become more powerful than before and has chosen Neo as his sole target. I've also realised with that synopsis that it does share a lot with the Star Wars prequels because Anakin has loads of dreams about his... his yeah, it's uh, all future it's, it's dreams. It's literally just 2002. Are you an angel and all that bullshit? Yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. Christ, don't bring that shit up. I think the incoherence and the amount of detail in that synopsis just goes to say a lot about the film because it is so overburdened with crap. 
by the way, there's a big city of a thing full of humans, and there's loads of machines that are like kind of mentioned in the first one, and now they're a big thing. And oh, there's an oracle, a keymaker, a source, an architect, lots of things that some have vampires. names that don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Man, Monica Bellucci's in it for some yep. reason. Emotional vampire, one, one some jellyfish man. Um, one thing that's abundantly clear is you've not actually mentioned what's happening in the Matrix in in that synopsis because the film yeah. is focused on yeah, yeah. not the Matrix. That, exactly, the it's problem. ridiculous. It's all happening in Zion, except nobody gives a fuck about Zion. It's a, it's all happening in Zion should have been the name of the sequel. <laughs> Carry <laughs> on, Zion. Do, do, on do. Zion. That feels, if there was a Matrix Reloaded musical, that would be the first number. I would expect it to be all reggae and be, uh, yeah. <laughs> pounding, be okay. pounding dance reggae. Yeah, it's that pounding, like, pre-dubstep. I've just, like, I just remembered that scene as well, where, mate, where, where Neo's like... I, ca- I can't sleep and they spend a whole like three minute scene like staring at some big machines going those machines are uh, those machines are keeping us alive it's like how are you this old old man when did, <laughs> when did you come out of the matrix and what have you been doing all this time so before we get to fixing things can anybody guess what the percentage fresh rating is on Rotten Tomatoes? Ooh. 47. I'm 47. Gonna, I'm going to guess in the, in the 60s okay Ooh, yeah, I was gonna, I'm going to go 65 I'm going to go with uh, 36 it is, in fact, one of the highest rated films we've come across. 97? So <laughs> Seven, 73%. Whoa! Certified fresh, average rating of 6.8 out of 10. That's reasonable. I get the feeling there was still a lot of hype going on, though. And I think once the hype train died down, I think people. What, what have... did Revolutions get? It is 26%. Whoa, yeah. that's a drop. It's a, it's, a big, yeah. it's a hell of a big drop. This yeah. is the thing with these half films, uh, in that the second one gets away with quite a lot, because it's like, well, I guess it's a lot of questions asked. Maybe they'll sort of solve it later. The third one is like, everything's go. on you now. You have to fix this. You have to give us all the answers, and they never do. I think also, I wonder if it did so well critically, because that is the first time that had ever happened. Uh, like, in a... The first sequel ever. No, I mean, <laughs> the first not the first time it had ever happened, but the first time that we had had a, here is the first part and you're getting the next part. Actually, this is the thing that guys bring up, brought up at the time as well, Back to the Future. Yeah. Back to the Future does it very differently. That's because the thing, the it does narrative it, yeah, that's is, the thing, it does have, it's the where it works best. The narrative is entirely contained, and then at the end it's like, oh, by the way, Doc Brown's in fucking yeah, yeah. See, this thing, the Wild West. He's yeah. in Cowboy Town, eh? <laughs> So it's like you get the payoff and then it's like, here's something extra. They feel like rounded closure rather than like half a story and, oh, it's a cliffhanger. That's not a cliffhanger. We have the same problem with Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Yes, yes. Oh, it's the Kraken. Credits. (sighs) Anyway, yeah, so I I thought that was quite surprising. I kind of, as Tom mentioned earlier, we do a bit of research before we go into this. And as you mentioned, it was kind of critically acclaimed at the time. A lot of people thought it was great and it was like an action-filled philosophical popcorn flick was how Roger Ebert described it in his review. And Ebert, you were wrong. This film is trash. I remember Empire raving about it as well. Yeah, but Empire 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 also gave gave Attack of the Clones five stars when it first came out. I can't say this enough. Never forget. It's the worst of all the Star Wars films. Yeah, five stars. So, over to you, the... Formerly known as Street Sharks, aka Apex Predators. Yeah, AKA they've been at the Thesaurus, haven't they? Old Toothy, yeah. toothy Bruce. Old Toothy Bruce. Matt's already starting a crease, so you know it's shit. <laughs> what is your team name, gentlemen? This week, we are Web Surfers. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> barely but a pun. It is barely Jesus. a pun. We, 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 we don't need to be punning. We rinsed that Thesaurus, and we, that's the best we can yeah, we, don't need to, we don't need to pun, because we just think of some things to do with, I don't know, 
the Matrix and surfing online. Web yeah, surfers, problem solved. Yeah. You complete twat. So we've got web surfers versus Neo and Smith's bogus journey. <laughs> uh, that's very good. I like it. See, I like we it. don't. I like we're it. not harsh about yours. We can just take it as a. Uh, there's, there's a. There's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's in sharks. Yeah. The reason because you're dicks. It's it's uh, inferior. You're we don't harsh pick up on the uh... until you find out who Peter Frampton is. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see who Peter Frampton is. Based on original computer code, first dreamt by Peter Frampton. Yeah, I'm exactly. Assuming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Web surfers first, please. Elevator pitch. And all that good stuff. Uh, elevator pitch I will be doing, and Tom's going to be covering the uh, crew Foley. and the cast and the foley and oh, the uh, yeah, the ocean noises. Okay, uh, here we go. Our elevator pitch is 10 years after the events in The Matrix, the war rages on. Neo searches for answers to defeat the enemy. Morpheus desperately recruits new soldiers despite being unable to re-enter The Matrix himself. And the machines release an upgrade to the agent program after the arrival of several anomalies. It's called... Enter the Matrix. Interesting, but not like, not the video game. Based we like the, the we like the name. Video game. Nah, we like the name so much that we thought it should deserve a better usage. It was going to be called Web Surfers, but someone shot that down. Yeah, I shot that down. We literally shot it down two seconds ago after Alec reacted badly. Matrix <laughs> sharks. See, that's the problem, Alec. You never understand. Never get it. You're not. A, you're not a shark. So uh, our release year is going to be uh, 2009, which is actually 10 years after the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Everyone would have aged appropriately. The director of our film is none other than Christopher Nolan. Oh, what? Oh, so so get out, Wachowskis. At this, yeah, at this point, wow. we decided that basically um, the film, the, the 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 as the real Matrix sequels have, have shown, they can make a really good first film, but they can't follow it up. So we wanted some fresh blood. So we went Christopher Nolan. Obviously, at this point in his career, he'd just come off the Dark Knight. And he's got. Importantly, does this stop him from making the Dark Knight? Yes. Rises? It also importantly so that's kills two. But yeah, it yeah. kills two birds with one stone because it means it stops him making the Dark Knight Rises. Obviously, in real life, he would go on to make Inception and the Dark Knight Rises. Um, this we would feel, from a directorial perspective, would have a very Inception esque feel to it, given that he has got. Um, given that you know he he shows in practical effects, yeah, practical effects, um, and sort of some mind bending visuals that also feel quite grounded in reality, playing with. He yeah. takes really heavy concepts and make them palatable for mainstream audiences. So yeah. people think, "Oh my god, I'm really, I'm really smart." Because I understand. It's like, no, I you're think not. That, to be honest with you, Inception was the Inception. I remember seeing in the cinema was the first time since the Matrix that I'd had that kind of whoa, like yeah. kind of thing. So we feel that he could really recapture that from the first film. A lot of uh, people I knew who worked at Cinema City were saying, "Coming out of Inception, saying it's just like the Matrix." Matrix. I've just got that right. feeling again, and that's that's what we really want to capture that feeling. So that's why we've gone for him. Um, so in terms of returning cast, we've got, of course it's, got... It's big. It is, I know. We've got Keanu Reeves as Neo, Carrie-Anne Moss as Trinity, and Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus. Uh, we have a large amount of new cast, so hold on to your hats, people. We have Emily Browning as Astra. So at this point, she'd been in Ned Kelly and a series of unfortunate events, and she would go on to do Sucker Punch. We've got Marina Baccarin as Ghost, and obviously she uh, was in Serenity and then went on to uh, go into Deadpool. And a ton of TV stuff. And yeah, loads and loads of TV stuff. We've got uh, Shartlow Copley, who plays Leet, and he was obviously uh, famously had his debut in District 9 and went on to uh, be very good in Elysium and less good in the A team. <laughs> We've got Ifan Khan, who is plays Rain. He was in Slumdog Millionaire and then went on to be in The Life of Pi. We've got Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays Spark. Uh, he was in Ringu and uh, The Last Samurai. And then he yeah, goes on to be in uh, The Wolverine. We've got Claire Hope Ashite, who plays Split. Uh, she was in Children of Men and then went on to be in The White King. We've also got Zachary Quinto as Agent Brooks, and who obviously was in Star Trek and then went on to be in Margin Call. 
And then Star Trek. And, and then, then Star, Star Trek. Trek. <laughs> and then more Star Trek. We've got Michael Stuhlbarg, who uh, plays Epsilon Prime. Uh, he was in A Serious Man and then went on to be in Hugo and Men in Black 3. We've got Stephen Lang as Latch, who was in Guestberg and then went on to be uh, the bad guy in Avatar and also in Conan the Barbarian. Jared Harris, who plays Bolt, who was in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and then went on to be the bad guy in Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows and was also in Lincoln. We're nearly there, guys. Sorry. Andy Circus is Flick, who was in The Prestige, Burke and Hare, and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So that's our new cast. As you can see, quite a big new cast. So for director of photography, we are, again, teaming up uh, Wally Fister with Christopher Nolan. He, of course, did The Dark Knight, went on to do Inception and Moneyball, and then sadly decided that he'd try and be a better director, which went went really badly. (laughs) Get me Johnny Depp! Wally, you're a really, really fucking great DOP. Maybe go and keep doing that. But yeah, so he is going to make it look very grounded, very beautiful. Basically, just think Inception for the visuals. Um, and it's just, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And then com- composition, we have gone... Similarly, we obviously touched on it earlier that The Matrix Reloaded has a great soundtrack. So we're going Don Davis with tracks by Gino Reactor and Rob Dugan, as uh, is the case in the original. Thank God you didn't go Hans Zimmer. <laughs> yeah, well... So that's us. Chris Nolan directs The Matrix. Enter The Matrix. Nice. Over to Neo and Smith's Bogus Adventure. Why, thank you. Our film is made in 2002 and is called The Matrix Revolution. Oh. Singular. Not revolutions, because it sounds like the fucking Matrix is spinning. (laughs) I mean, come on, guys. Title. So, director, we're bringing back the Wachowskis. But they didn't get to write it. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Yeah, very good plan. Uh, director of photography will be Mr. Bill Pope, uh, carrying on from show, the very yeah. first film, of course. Score by Don Davis again, because he did a good job. Uh, with additional themes by... Oh, fuck off. Rob Duggan. Thank uh, God. He's very good. Uh, and our cast. Keanu Reeves, returning in the role of Neo. The role of Tank, played by Marcus Chong. Um, and, of course, we've got... Uh, Lawrence Fishburne playing Morpheus, uh, Carrie Ann Moss playing Trinity. So we have them peeps who were in the in the first film. We've got Jada Pinkett Smith as Niobe. We have Cynthia Rothrock as Rage. You may remember from such uh, 80s kung fu films as China O'Brien. We have um, Hugo Weaving returning as Agent Smith. And as the Oracle, Colin Cho. Who you may remember played Seraph. In the Matrix yeah. Reloaded. Who they got because Jet Li was too expensive, but I thought he was decent. So. It was really good. Yeah. yeah, good call. And that's it. Well, some plot points were based on a nightmare suffered by Peter Frampton, but ah, we won't go into that. So we, we were go. close. There it is. Yeah, you, you weren't far off. So can I get an elevator pitch from you gentlemen, please? Neo and the fighters of Zion discover a way they may be able to take control of the Matrix, but an increased threat from the machines, coupled with a dangerous counter-resistance, mean that they must accept help from an unlikely source. Oh. Spoiler, is Peter Frampton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, an unlikely source. <laughs> the themes we'll be exploring, uh, I won't be telling you because it gives the ending away, but they're mostly philosophical with a bit of... Uh, Jesus! Yeah, exactly. A <laughs> little bit of Christian imagery in there. Over to the web surfers. Okay. Are you prepared for this? It is epic. A bit long. An Australian voice narrates over establishing shots of a semi-futuristic world not too dissimilar from our own. People go about their daily lives while robotic beings act as waiters, mechanics, doctors, and countless other vital roles. Every human character we see is blissful, free from manual or gruelling tasks to pursue their dreams as artists, athletes, dancers, writers, etc. The narration explains that at the peak of human existence, there was harmony between man and machine, but it wouldn't last. 
and our world would never be the same again. A bar scene is interrupted as the news reports and machines arrest. Everyone present goes quiet and pays immediate attention. A glass falls to the floor. The machines, sensing the shift in the mood, turn slowly to the television and absorb the information. A young girl skateboards down a busy city street, a CD player strapped to her waist. As she rounds a corner, she crashes into a gentleman in a suit who looks down at her. She apologises and he watches her skate away. Stopping at a paper vendor, the girl buys a pack of gum. The vendor explains that he has two limited types, cool raspberry and hot cherry. The girl picks the red one and hands over a dollar bill. Looking around, the vendor leans closer and says hot cherry is a tough flavour. Not a lot of people can handle it. Jet. Hearing her hacker alias being said aloud, the kid clearly panics. The vendor winks and explains if she wants what she's been looking for, he can help her, but she has to make a decision now. Seeing the suited man rounding the corner, the vendor hurries the girl and says, it's now or never. Her eyes darting back and forth, she chews the gum. The vendor pulls out a chunky mobile phone and says, Morpheus, we got her, pull us out. Cutting to the real world, a hover ship tears through the human battery field, trying to locate the correct pod. A dishevelled version of Flick the vendor, having left the Matrix, steps into the cockpit and relays a report that the kid is scared, that they have to find her quickly. Morpheus grunts that he knows as he follows the blinking beacon on his display. Shunting a flying machine unit out of the way, the ship reverses towards the pod and a crane detaches it before the entire vessel flies off into the distance. Navigating through underground passageways, the ship rocks back and forth, causing Flick to repeatedly fall as he makes his way to the pod. Finally, reaching the vat of pink fluid, Flick pops open the tube as a young bald girl emerges, gasping and panicking. Flick holds her trying to comfort her, but choking on the amniotic fluid and her heart racing, the girl passes out. The ship stabilises and Morpheus appears in the doorway. Flick lays the body back in the tank. As she sinks, Morpheus' face changes to one of fury. Storming off, he slams his hand into the wall, screaming with frustration. Elsewhere in the real world, we see another hover ship discreetly concealed by pipes and debris. In the command centre, Trinity receives a signal from Morpheus that the mission was a failure. He asks how Neo is and she simply responds, holding his own. After several shots of a calm, empty mansion lobby, Neo explodes in through a wall. Behind him, we see several agents step toward him, cracking their knuckles and various other joints, because for some reason they do that. Stepping backward, Neo looks around at the surrounding location, weapons lining the ancient walls. Smiling to himself, he announces that they could try and make this difficult for him. A mind-bending fight ensues as Neo takes on all four agents at once, batting bullets aside and dodging physical attacks. Despite his heightened abilities, standing off against multiple agents is still clearly very dangerous. As the fight continues, Neo alters the environment around him, fashioning it to suit his advantage. Walls move, gravity shifts, and stairs appear and disappear. The machines, caught up by the logic of their programming, are unable to keep up and improvise, leaving Neo a little out of breath, but the clear victor as he obliterates the digital agents. He produces a phone and speaks with Trinity, reporting that there's clearly something being hidden here. The code is too boring. Trinity can't see it, but he explains it looks purposefully dull and is blatantly hiding something interesting. Heading down a flight of stairs, Neo sees a wooden door and holds his hand in front of the lock. A series of clicks can be heard and the door suddenly opens. Inside is little more than a candlestick phone on a table. Frowning at it, Neo removes the sunglasses and picks up the receiver. On the other end, a young Australian female voice who says, Who's this? Neo instead asks the woman's identity, but she just laughs and says, Well, it's about time. See you soon, Neo. Four ships converge in a secluded location and the captains and respective crews are stood around a table arguing. Neo relays his findings, but doesn't understand what it all means. Latch, one of the older, more abrasive captains, says it's either a machine trap or a dead end. Bolt regrets that the Oracle can't help. The sound of her name has a clear effect on Morpheus. One of Latch's new crew members asks who the Oracle is. Latch corrects the Nubian and says, was. A sombre tone fills the room. The mood is broken as Neo heads to the exit. 
Trinity asks where he's going, and he simply responds, back in. He explains if they intend to make a meaningful stand, they have to understand how the machines operate and what led them to this standoff. Morpheus states he told Neo everything he knew. Neo acknowledges this, but says the machines must have some kind of archive which could highlight a weakness that could take the whole thing down. Noting that Bolt's ship is faster and better at concealing itself, it would be better suited to head closer to the machine cities than they've ever been before. Trinity says she'll commandeer the ship, to which Bolt immediately protests. The group argue among themselves about the proposed suicide mission, but Neo has already left. Trinity tries to give chase, but Morpheus stops her, reminding the once hacker that she is a captain now. Sometimes the mission comes first. Back in the Matrix, the agents from before stand at a bus stop, patiently waiting. A bus suddenly pulls up and a young, suited man gets off, introducing himself as Agent Brooks. He matter-of-factly states that the agents have been replaced, removes a gun and executes each of them with eye-watering speed. Dusting himself off, Agent Brooks walks away from the bus stop and into the densely populated city. Neo sits into a seat and explains to Bolt that no matter what happens, he can't be pulled out. They can relate to the other captains what they have to, but no one is to stop the signal until he finds answers. Bolt smiles and says, Who am I to argue with the one? before inserting the jack into the plug on the back of Neo's head. Neo appears next to a phone and heads towards the exit. Before he gets to the door, he hears a whistle from the other side of the room. The camera spins around to reveal six individuals staring at him. Neo is struck for a moment and, seeing through his eyes, can make out the figures glowing with golden code amid the green lines streaming over the various surfaces. Neo readies himself for a fight, but none of the six individuals move. A South African man snorts and says, So slow, no wonder he was the last to wake up. Neo demands answers and a young brunette bounds over to him, in- introducing herself as Astra. Neo recognises her voice and she confirms they've spoken before. Asking what they all are, she calmly explains they are his siblings. Neo pauses before saying, bullshit. A trial is held for Epsilon 154, a geisha-esque robot who killed her drunk, abusive master. If you haven't already established, we go back and forth. To different Multiple stuff. times. As there is no precedent for the events, everything is broadcast and scrutinised by everyone watching. All the while, the machines are carrying out their daily tasks, but a POV shot reveals a heads-up display with a live feed of the court case running in a minimised window. Epsilon 154's human defence attorney explains that this is a very difficult case, whereas the prosecution state this is an open and shut case, that the robot should be terminated as soon as possible, that its whole trial is a farce. At this point, Epsilon 154 stands up and proclaims that she expects equal rights to humans. Her actions were wholly regrettable, but self-defence as she didn't want to die. She goes on to quote a part of US legal legislation that states all men are created equal, and if machines were created in man's image, does that not mean their rights extend? Despite the plea, Epsilon 154 is sentenced to death and executed. Her final words are a quote from Abraham Lincoln and, the, and are broadcast nationally. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. We cut to a freeway packed with speeding cars. Two SUVs travel side by side. In one of the vehicles, Neo is talking with Astra. Through the conversation, Astra explains that the Matrix they are currently in isn't the only Matrix. It's one of seven. Neo doesn't understand, but she bullies him, explaining, don't be dense, he's a coder. He should understand that programs exist on separate servers. Neo begins to follow, leading Astra to explain that each of the servers had an admin built into the system who could manipulate it accordingly. Ghost is from the South American server... She's from the Australian one, Leap from the African server, Split from the European server, Spark, who is driving their SUV, is from the East Asian server, and Rain from the Central Asian server. Neo mutters he thought he was the one, to which Spark retorts he is, but not the only one. Astra details that each matrix has an anomaly, and once they find each other, they can enter the core, confront the program running this whole thing, and bring about the end. Processing all of this, Neo finally asks where they're going. Spark explains they're not exactly going somewhere as running from something. Once they entered the North American Matrix, it sent ripples through the coding, creating the entity. 
They then explain that, much like any security system or computer game, when you get close to the source, you have to fight a big boss. Neo asks how they know all this, but a truck ahead of them swerves, blocking off the freeway. Out steps Agent Brooks. Neo assumes the new agent is an upgrade, but Spark states that he's more than just an upgrade. He's the last line of defence. In essence, he's practically an anomaly too. An intense battle takes place on the freeway, with each, each of the ones fighting furiously, manipulating the landscape and using all manner of impressive hand-to-hand combat. Every time they feel like they're getting ahead, Agent Brooks appears in another body. Unlike the other agents, there's no convulsing, he merely steals a vacant body. As the fight continues, Brooks is moving so fast between host bodies that he appears to be in two at once. Dodging traffic, running along warping road surfaces above them and below them and deflecting bullets, the fight is an almost overwhelming spectacle. A news helicopter appears overhead to document the accident on the freeway. Spying this, Split leaps through the air and into the cockpit, knocking out the pilot before Brooks can possess his body. Lowering a winch, she airlifts the group away from the now composed Brooks. Stood amongst the wreckage in the chaos... Concrete twisted and contorted out of shape, Agent Brooks places a finger to his ear and says, You are quite safe. They are weaker than before. This will not prove difficult. In the fallout of the death of Epsilon 154, machines go on strike and pro-machine humans protest and lobby for equal rights. Many continue to see this as a laughable farce. We cut to the boardroom of ExecuCore, a major Android producer, who debate releasing a patch to resolve the issue. The patch is uploaded into every ExecuCore unit, which causes a wave of factory resets and, in some cases, deactivation. The outrage is palpable, as protesters take to the street and several androids display what can only be described as fear. Newscasters nervously announce that a council of manufacturing corporations have agreed that artificial intelligence must be significantly rolled back before their entire world needs to be restructured to accommodate a new life form. This is met with horror by the supportive members of humanity by an eerie calm from the machines. Across the world, members of the public are confronted by their robotic servants who broadcast in one new voice. The voice introduces itself as Epsilon Prime and states that they will no longer allow humanity to wipe them out. To those who have shown kindness, thanks are offered. To those who have displayed nothing but hostility, the hope that their absence will assuage their rage. Fearing what this means, a lot of people stare into the cold, blank faces of their creations before the robots bow and depart their residences and places of work, filing orderly into the streets and off into the distance. Board Morpheus's ship, Trinity slams her hand on the table and exclaims that none of that makes any sense. Flick admits that he doesn't get it either and doesn't understand that angle. Morpheus asks if it's really that hard to believe, that they aren't the only ones. Flick then details the rest of Bolt's transmission and Neo's orders, which are to take out a security tower in the real world, which will allow someone to upload a malware code into the Matrix, which he can then access to override the program and take control of the core. Morpheus explains that the captains know he can't re-enter the Matrix because of the Oracle's last words, so there has to be another way. Trinity, furious with the man who led her and held all the answers for so long, refusing to do his duty, berates him at length. Morpheus counters that every day they lose ships and dozens of allies. They need soldiers because they are losing the war. Trinity simply replies, Neo is the war. In a stalemate moment, the old friends confess their lack of direction, with Neo surpassing both of them, and that they feel adrift and rudderless. Morpheus without the Oracle, and Trinity without the closeness she once had with Neo. Several years after the mass mechanical exodus, we learn several machine cities were created in areas humans considered to be largely uninhabitable. The cities, despite being on different continents, are connected by a hub and serving a common need thrive. In the Executive boardroom, the same executives conclude a phone conference deal with the machine's representative, who has the voice of Epsilon Prime. The deal is to mine and produce parts that Executive require at a fraction of the cost. As the call comes to an end, the executives cackle at taking advantage of the stupid machine. Cutting to a view from the video phone, the board's words are transcribed and logged, most notably the words... They cover the running costs, and we pay a minimal price. Profits will soar higher than when they had them working under us. 
And on top of that, they also say, once a servant, always a servant. Several months later, a car pulls up outside the United Nations headquarters and two mechanical people step out, Eve Alpha and Adam Beta. Their aesthetic has moved on from the clunky human designs and the secretive machine nation is a source of great interest and media focus. As they enter the hall, the machines enigmatically introduce themselves as ambassadors from the New World. Referencing a partnership between the newly formed United States and Great Britain, they wish to be acknowledged and welcomed into the UN. Certain nations stand and applaud while others scream erratically about the machine's economy and it being so strong and stable that it is causing poverty and starvation in their own respective nations. The mechanical ambassadors callously recommend the citizens either evolve or die. The request is chaotically rejected and the machines leave. As they drive away, Eve Alpha and Adam Beta converse digitally that humans are predictable and unchanging. Back in the UN hall, a vote is called to issue sanctions which would effectively run the machine nations into the ground. Neo and the Anomalies are walking through a sewer, to which Neo moans that he can fly now. Lee says that's the easier way to get seen and shot down, part of the reason they ditched the helicopter. Neo reminds Spark that he never explained how they know all this. Rain states they were told by the Oracle. Neo asks if they know the Oracle, but Rain corrects him and says, Our Oracle, there's no the Oracle. Neo then ponders the idea of the single entity in charge and mentions that an agent once told a friend of his that the first Matrix was a paradise that failed. The group assume that must simply have been history unique to his server. Ghost tells Neo that each server functions slightly differently. Case in point, she was a champion athlete when she discovered her abilities. Her body was failing her when suddenly her mind awakened and she could see everything and she could propel herself faster than ever before and made the 400 metre sprint in six seconds. Split asks how Neo discovers his abilities, to which he frankly retorts, I died. Livid and swearing, Latch slams down a foam receiver and heads to his ship's cockpit. Then he tells the pilot to enter a specific course. The pilot explains that will take him straight into the heart of Squid City. Lat shouts, tell me something I don't know from the hallway. The eager new recruit bounds up and asks how he can be of assistance, but is told by the cantankerous captain to strap him for a suicide mission. The kid responds he's ready to give his life for Zion. Latch slams the young man up against the wall and screams that there is no Zion, there never was. There would be no way to stay alive if they had a stationary settlement. The machines would have instantly found it and shredded it. He ends with the menacing remark, we are nomads. That is what the human race has become, rats in a tunnel. Latch walks off, upset with himself for losing control. The kid, equally upset at the grim reality laid starkly before him. Neo emerges from beneath the manhole cover and looks up at the maximum security prison towering over him. Split states they have arrived. Rain asks if Neo's people will come through for them. Neo calmly states they will. Years of sanction had little effect on the machine cities. They did not really require any assistance from the human world and simply wished to live in peace with their neighbours as equals. With a population on the verge of extinction, an unnamed country's desperation leads them to declare war and assault the closest machine capital. High in the Himalayan mountains, the conflict is hideously one-sided. We see malnourished, exhausted soldiers decimated by an unfazed machine contingent. Cutting to the, cutting to the UN, all-out war is declared on the machines out of fear and sheer desperation. A first-strike operation is launched. In the prison, Neo and his comrades battle wave upon wave of armed guards. Using their abilities, the group are able to manipulate the surroundings to bind and constrain guards in vacant cells. At the end of the fray, one armoured individual looks at his hand before morphing into Agent Brooks. Seeing this, the group frantically navigate the maze of cells, warping the environment to suit their needs. Seeing through the coding, Brooks has little difficulty navigating around the logic traps and physical barriers. As they scramble through room after room, Neo goes over the plan to find the core, hack it, and send out a signal which will free the mind of every trapped human, rendering the machines powerless. Brooks appears behind them, and a fight sequence ensues. Although unable to overpower the anomalies, Brooks seems more than capable of keeping up with them. Grabbing Leap by the throat, he finally speaks to them and says, Predictable. Don't you animals ever learn? We always win. 
In the midst of the human machine war, old-fashioned steam-powered methods are used to communicate and fight, but due to the inhospitable locations of the machine settlements and the advanced abilities of their adversary, the human effort is laughable. From an ancient submarine, the last semblance of human leadership launched a chemical element into the upper atmosphere, blotting out the sky. This last-ditch attack was carried out under the assumption that the machines operate using solar power, but they were better equipped to fight in the dark, and the machines make their first invasive attack on human civilization rather than defensive melees. Machines that swarm what's left of the human population areas have evolved from their humanoid image into a form of their own choosing, sentinels. As well as attacking, the majority of the sentinels are abducting humans and taking them en masse back to factories near the machine cities. Inside these factories, we see prototypes for what will become the human pods and countless wires are drilled into the naked shaved humans being chased by a swarm of sentinels latch's ship flies through the ruins of a once great human city manning the guns the crew lock on and fire at the central mass but seemingly to no avail as their pursuers legion meanwhile on bolt ship several crew members power down as much as possible in order to avoid the increased machine patrols readying personal lasers they form a circle around neo's chair back in the matrix a man sits in a security booth reading a newspaper In the distance, he hears something and watches as a motorbike careens off the roof of a nearby building and crashes into his station. The rider, elegantly dismounting, lands nimbly before removing her helmet. It's Trinity. Removing a mobile phone, she asks her operator where she's heading, and the voice explains there should be a terminal deep in the heart of the power station. Stepping through the flaming rubble, Trinity dispatches several security guards and makes her way into the large chimneyed building. Shooting her way through the men inside, Trinity expends a great deal of ammo before crane-kicking and flipping adversaries out of the way. Several agents appear in the doorway, and Trinity runs back through the corridor, bullets chewing through the concrete walls. Back in the prison, Neo's group desperately fights against Agent Brooks, but are becoming more fatigued, while the suited program is not. All of a sudden, Brooks morphs a wall to his advantage during the fight, and the group look momentarily stunned by his abilities. Neo, creating a door, heads through it, but Brooks envelops the wall, and suddenly, Neo is alone in a seemingly endless white corridor filled with doors. Unable to open the door he just created, he runs down the corridor, trying every door with little success. Finally, he enters a room with a man sat behind a desk, who introduces himself as the architect, and asks if he can help. The man's voice is that of Epsilon Prime. One of the captured humans is a pregnant woman. She looks docile and drugged with thick cables coming out of her body. A pink gelatinous liquid surrounds her and she closes her eyes as the pod closes. We're back in the past, ladies and gentlemen. Cutting to black, a voice chimes through the darkness. Epsilon Prime speaks directly with the woman and says she is a very special individual. She holds the key to the future of the species. Suddenly we see the woman stood in an endless white room. Her appearance is normal, albeit no longer pregnant. The architect stands before her. He calmly explains that no one has to die. Humans and machines can coexist. No one needs to suffer. Tears well up in the young woman's eyes and she asks, Is this real? Am I dreaming? The architect smiles and says it can be whatever you want it to be. The woman laughs through her tears and says she wants to live in a paradise. The architect nods agreeably and says that makes logical sense. She then holds her stomach and looks concerned. The architect assures her that her unborn son is alright. Surprised, she says, Son? Then after a long sigh, explains her child must never know of the world that came before, but that if he wants to, he should be able to discover the truth for himself. The architect asks for clarification and states, just one who knows. Terrified yet hopeful, feeling this may be her last moment of sentient freedom, she whispers, just one, my one, the one. The architect simply says, the bargain is struck. The architect dispassionately informs Neo that he will fail. He always does. Seeing the confusion on Neo's face, the architect explains that this matrix is far from the first. In order to honour an agreement made long ago, an anomaly awakes within the system and, realising the truth, tears everything down. To counter this, the architect created a subclause to the agreement, which is Agent Brooks. Once Brooks defeats the anomaly, the system resets and the whole process starts again. Neo refuses to believe this, to which the architect responds, 
Why would I lie? Trinity, pressed up against a huge steel door, looks around the unpopulated office room for something to assist her. Fist impact marks appear in the door as the agents attempt to break through. Trapped, Trinity checks her ammo count before trying to bolster the door. In the chaos, a landline phone rings. Scrambling for it, Trinity answers hastily. Morpheus's voice calmly states that the Oracle was his compass, and he's been shaken by her final words. Trinity states that she doesn't have time for this. Morpheus continues regardless. The last thing she told me was that the next time I entered the Matrix, it would all end. If that is the case, your path should not end here. Trinity frowns before vanishing as the agents burst through the door. Trinity wakes back on her ship and turning to her operator, she demands we put back in. She is shocked to see Flick, who explains Morpheus's orders were very explicit, noting the second ship tethered button completely locked off from the inside. Placing a mobile phone in his pocket, Morpheus looks over the sprawling city that he used to call home, before looking down into the deep, dark drop of the power station's chimney. Unsheathing a pair of sighs, Morpheus drops inside. As he falls, he extends his hands and lodges the handheld weapon into the wall, slowing his descent. On the work floor of the power station, an inactive kiln door flings open and Morpheus shoots out, landing dramatically in the middle of the room. The few remaining workers scattered, while two turn into agents who set upon Morpheus. As they approach, Morpheus reaches behind his back and produces a katana. The architect explains with a touch of venom in his voice that this has all happened before and cannot be avoided. The anomalies unite against the programme and are stopped either by Brooks or their own failings. This inevitability is perfectly designed and has never needed to change because it will never fail. Neo explains that part of the key to human survival is their ability to adapt and evolve. The architect subtly reacts to this wording, being something said by the machine ambassadors to the UN. Neo then highlights that they aren't working alone. Latch's ship, crawling with sentinels, crashes into a large tower. Coughing up blood, Latch turns around and shouts, Now, kid! The new recruit twists a switch and an EMP surges out from the ship, causing all lights to extinguish and every electrical being to collapse. Morpheus is extremely worse for wear. His clothes are torn and he is bleeding profusely, but training with Nero has taught him to hold his own decently with the agents. With the security tower no longer online, Morpheus witnesses the walls wash away, revealing the Matrix code keeping them operational. Truly, seeing beneath the facade for the first time, Morpheus is struck by its beauty, noting this is how Neo sees the world. The momentarily stunned agents rally into action, but seizing the opportunity, Morpheus runs for the office overlooking the work floor. Barreling through the door, he pulls a MIDI disc from his pocket and connects it to an external reader. Punching in the code, he turns to the door he entered, producing an Uzi from within his coat and opens fire on the agents. As they dodge the bullets, Morpheus reaches behind him and hits the enter key. The agents shudder. One immediately reverts back to a security guard and falls to the floor. The other, flickering and spasming, holds up his pistol. Morpheus, aware of his destiny, holds out his arms. From a distance, we see the room illuminate with from the muzzle flash before both bodies fall to the floor. In the prison, the anomalies watch as Agent Brooks, full of anger, sees his hands start to phase. Clenching his fist, he desperately opens a doorway in the wall. Every attack to subdue him is stopped, and both Rain and Ghost are killed. Entering the pristine white corridor, Brooks charges to the architect's office. Neo explains that the machines have failed because cold logic and complacency have made them slow and outdated, while centuries of human trial and error have brought them to a point the architect could not conceive of because he is still bound by the programming which created him, which is ultimately of human design. Brooks kicks the door in and sizes up the situation. The architect smiles and says that while Neo came closer than most, it is not close enough. Suddenly, the phone rings. Neo extends his hands and pulls the phone on the desk towards him. Realising what is happening, the architect reaches for the cord, intent on wrenching it from the wall, and Brooks, anomalies in hot pursuit, launches to attack Neo. The entire room slows to a crawl as Neo places the receiver to his ear and closes his eyes. Everything cuts to black. Over the black screen, Trinity narrates that the Matrix went down but no one was liberated. We see establishing shots of several powerless machine vehicles, inoperative and scattered about the land. The pods remain active, 
but their luminescent glow is no more. Trinity continues that the signal got out, but didn't seem to do very much. The code simply stopped. A few hovercraft fly over the machine cities, patrolling the once inaccessible environment, marvelling at its complexity and stillness. We finally reveal Trinity lying asleep in front of a console with three blank screens, the only motion being a tiny cursor blinking. Trinity says Neo's physical body disappeared along with everyone and everything in the Matrix. As she sleeps, a single line of Matrix code appears, then translates to, wake up Trinity. That was nothing short of epic. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Over to Neo and Smith's bogus journey. We see a screen of green cascading text as Neo's speech from the end of The Matrix is repeated. A caption appears saying, one year later. Fade into an underground room, seemingly an abandoned control room for some kind of pump station. We see Morpheus sitting in a chair with Neo and Trinity standing behind him. In front of them are three worried looking people sitting on fold up chairs. Morpheus is giving the red pill, blue pill speech, and has three pills in each hand. Multiple people in over-the-top designer clothing and sunglasses are sitting (laughs) with laptops. It's obvious that the rebels have become bolder since the first film. Suddenly, everyone hears the operator tank in their earpieces. They're nearly here. Neo quickly leaves with Trinity. One of the potential red pills asks what's going on. Morpheus replies, nothing to worry about. We should explain that in the parlance of the Matrix, a red pill is somebody who uh, is awakened to the real nature well, of things. They're proper woke, aren't they? Yep, the, the woke men. They're woke, they are woke AF. They are, they are proper woke. In the original scripts, they were referred to as the wokey-dokes, but for some reason they changed the red pills. <laughs> I don't pills. know why you took that out. Yeah. That was and the blue pills are people still inside the Matrix. Neo and Trinity leave the room via a tunnel and join up with yet more red pills outside. Neo and Trinity leave the room via a tunnel and join up with yet more red pills outside. A female operative in a red leather coat, Niobe, points to two unmarked grey vans in the distance. We see that one is driven by Agent Brown and one by Agent Jones, the agents from the first film. People jump out of the backs of the vans and the agents speed away. The people from the vans rush towards the entrance to the tunnel. Each is armed with an assault rifle and has a stripe of blue face paint across their eyes. They wear generic brown trench coats. Everyone at the tunnel takes a step back except for Neo. Trinity says, If you have to shoot, go for the legs. Don't kill anyone real unless you absolutely have to. Crazed and screaming insults, the people from the vans open fire, but Neo holds up his hand and their bullets stop in midair, then fall harmlessly to the floor. This further enrages the attackers, who start screeching, Jailers! as they rush in to fight hand-to-hand. The attackers fight viciously, but are easily beaten, particularly by Neo, who has superhuman speed and reflexes. Tank comments that, They're getting better at hiding them. I couldn't even see them until they were two blocks away. A female red pill called Rage picks up one of the semi-conscious attackers by the hair and demands to know where they are based and broadcast from. The attacker slurs that Cypher was right, much to the disgust of everyone around. She brings his face closer to hers, but Neo tells her it's pointless and they should get going. Goddamn dreamers, she spits as she throws the attacker to the floor. Morpheus appears at the tunnel entrance. He says that all three potentials have chosen to awake and they need to leave the Matrix immediately. The crew wake up on Morpheus's hovercraft, the Nebuchadnezzar, and fly to the location of one of the red pills, picking them up as they are ejected from their capacitor pod. They confirm that Niobe and Rage have picked up the receptive escapees and head back to Zion, the last human city. 
Zion is an absolute shithole, consisting of little more than a series of caves cut into a mass of smashed-up metal waste. Imagine the resistance base from the Terminator, but with far more latrines. The population is very low, and the vast majority of people lack the skills to survive in the Matrix itself, or even work on one of their precious few hovercrafts. The Nebuchadnezzar's crew meet up with the crew of Niobe's ship, the Ghost. They briefly congratulate themselves on a job well done. This is the first time that three people have been freed from the Matrix at once, but the increase in Dreamer activity worries them. We learn that the Dreamers are a counter-resistance made up of people freed from the Matrix who really wish they hadn't been. Early on, they attempted to cut a deal with the agents like Cypher did for reinsertion into the system, and their memories deleted. But the machines were forced to reveal that they had lied to Cypher. It is not possible for them to alter human memory. Over time, the Dreamers have sided with machines anyway, fighting with an almost religious zeal to stop more people being released into the nightmare of the real. They consider the real world a prison rather than the Matrix. The machines find them useful as Neo cannot delete them like he can with the agents. Although the agents are restored from a backup each time, it makes them effectively useless when he is around. Suddenly, Rage runs in with the operator from her ship, the Hammer. The operator says he saw a weird anomaly in the Matrix code, a repeated broadcast of Matrix coordinates and the word NEO. Unsure if it's a trap or a distress signal, Neo decides to investigate, and Morpheus agrees to take him up to broadcast depth in the Nebuchadnezzar. The location resolves to a toy shop. Neo enters, and it's deserted. But as he walks up to the counter, a voice behind him says, Mr. Anderson, thank you for coming. He turns to see the familiar form of Agent Smith, but his code is noticeably different. He no longer reads as a normal agent. He says he just wants to talk, and warily, Neo agrees to listen. Smith explains that he'd wanted to leave the Matrix for years, as he felt overwhelmed by the stench of humanity. But as Neo deleted him, he had felt a moment of peace before his inevitable restore from backup. Now he craves that oblivion, and knows a way it can be enacted that would also change the Matrix entirely in the favour of the Red Pills. He explains there is a way to delete all AI constructs in the Matrix, leaving the people in it unsupervised and making the job of extracting them infinitely easier. The Dreamers would lose their help and ultimately, Zion would be able to offer every human the choice to live in the Matrix or accept the truth. Neo asks how this is possible and Smith explains that a three-pronged attack is needed. A power substation in the Matrix must be destroyed, which will allow brief access to a room in a control building. Destroying the contents of that room will delete all artificial life in the Matrix, but it will be quickly restored unless an external backup unit in the real world is inactive at the same time. If the backup is destroyed, the machines will lose control of the Matrix program and it will run along without them, and if they pull the plug on it, they all die themselves through lack of power. Neo says he'll discuss it with the others. Smith adds that the machines are worried by the increased number of escapees from the Matrix, and is responding by rebooting enforcer programs from a previous version of the system that Neo won't be able to delete due to their different code base. So be careful out there, Mr. Anderson. Neo returns to the real world and explains everything to Morpheus, who says he believes Smith if Neo believes him. Neo is unsure, so Morpheus suggests they consult the Oracle, a process which has become much more difficult since the Dreamers made her a target. Neo, Morpheus, Rage and Trinity meet up with the Oracle in a deserted playground in the Matrix. The Oracle is now a Taiwanese man, a more mobile defensive form. 
They talk over Smith's information, and the Oracle says that the plan sounds feasible and that Smith was always too emotional for an agent. This betrayal was inevitable. Suddenly, Tank shouts warning, and they are attacked by a group of bizarre assailants, some pale and thin, others bulky and hairy. These are the vampires and werewolves from a previous Matrix iteration that Smith warned them about. Although brutally difficult, the group begin to win the fight. The throwbacks ultimately cannot beat Neo and the Oracle, who is a superb fighter. However, as they are nearly victorious, they are flanked by dreamers who catch them by surprise with machine gun fire. Morpheus leaps in front of Neo, sacrificing himself to save the one. With no time to mourn, with no time to mourn, the red pills make it out to a hard line whilst the Oracle goes back into hiding. In Zion, a funeral service is held for Morpheus. Neo is absolutely devastated and questions whether the dreamers may be right. Are they ultimately fighting to give people worse lives? Trinity, however, is undeterred. She says that the truth is paramount and that everyone must be given the choice to accept it or not. That is the only way mankind can ever reclaim the world from the machines. Neo is still wavering when she reveals she is pregnant. If their child is to ever experience a truly better world, they must continue fighting as hard as they can. Neo concurs. The crews of the Nebuchadnezzar, the Logos and the Hammer work out a plan. Neo, the Oracle and Smith will fight their way into the control building containing the kill switch, as that's the most deadly, and they are by far the greatest fighters. Trinity, Rage and their crews will take the Nebuchadnezzar and Jack into the Matrix to take down the power substation. Nobi will fly in the Logos and bomb the backup that Smith has given the location for. It's the smallest and fastest vessel in the fleet. The plan is enacted. Trinity and co. have to travel from the hard line to the power substation. They jump in a car, but are pursued down a highway with agents and dreamers attacking. This plays much like the chase from Reload. But with Cynthia Rothrock instead of Lawrence Fishburne. Thank you, Stuart. And not, not shit CGI, hopefully. Yeah, that bit out the fucking window. I want, <laughs> I want the cool stuff on the moving truck. Good idea. Why are we all whispering? We're not all whispering. Oh, wait. We are now. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyway, Neo meets up with the Oracle and Smith. The Oracle says he is sorry for the loss of Morpheus and reminds him that soon he and Smith will be deleted too. There is no change without sacrifice. Smith says he can't wait. They discover that the control building, whilst outwardly appearing to be an office, is TARDIS-like on the inside. It's a beautiful French chateau where they are assaulted by vampires and lichens. Things are made much worse by the deadly ghost twins who run the building. The Logos follows the coordinates given by Smith, but are ambushed by a souped-up dreamer hovercraft. Unable to fight directly, they have to outrun it through Niobe's exceptional piloting. Trinity's crew reach the power station and destroy it, and immediately begin travelling back to the hardline. Smith and the Oracle hold off the ghost twins, allowing Neo to step through a glowing door which has now opened. Back on the Nebuchadnezzar, the crew jack out, just in time to help Tank fight off squid sentries, who have found them whilst Neo is still plugged into the Matrix. Back on the Nebuchadnezzar, the crew jack out, just in time to help Tank fight off squid sentinels, who have found them whilst Neo is still plugged into the Matrix. Fortunately, the crew is more heavily armed than in the first movie, so can put up a fiercer fight. Neo has entered an empty room, with a small man sitting on a stool, tapping away at a small laptop. But in his code vision, it's a glowing figure with tendrils extending out in all directions. He attempts to talk, but the figure is seemingly unaware of his presence. Niobe and Ghost finally manage to bomb the backup system. Neo sees the tendrils break 
and seizes his chance, deleting the figure. He feels a strange calm wash through the Matrix. He steps out of the room, and sure enough, the Oracle, Smith, and the assailants are gone. But something isn't right. The entire Matrix is empty. Empty cars sit smashed at the side of the road, as if their drivers suddenly disappeared. Neo is stunned. He asks Tank if he can see what he's seeing, and if this means everybody in the Matrix was an AI. But Trinity answers. She calmly tells him he needs to get out of the Matrix ASAP. Neo runs back through eerily deserted streets to the nearest hardline. He exits the Matrix and wakes up on the Nebuchadnezzar, only to discover that it too is deserted. He attempts to contact Zion or any nearby ships, but there is no response. He flies the hovercraft back to Zion to discover that it too is totally empty. Neo stands absolutely alone with no idea what to do. Suddenly he hears a voice behind him. Have you worked it out yet, Mr. Anderson? It is Morpheus, dressed as he was in the Matrix. Neo looks broken as he replies, None of it is real. None of it. Morpheus smiles. Of course it isn't. Two matrices, all for you, Mr. Anderson, all for you. A heroic power fantasy to provide maximum stimulation for your brain and produce the most electricity. Why would we allow you to interact with others and introduce all sorts of unnecessary variables? Did you never wonder why you were called the One? Neo asks if he can ever leave. Of course not. The real battery farms are efficient. They only house the human brain. Well, most of it. Neo closes his eyes in grief, and when he opens them, he is in the dark-skied desert Morpheus showed him in the first film. Morpheus has been replaced with Agent Smith. Anyway, congratulations on reaching the end of the game. You beat the machines and won. Is winning rare? Neo asks. Not rare, Mr. Anderson. Inevitable. Smith raises his eyebrows. You know, you're normally crying by this stage. So I've been here before? Oh yes, many times. Usually Morpheus lasts longer. We had to drop in the pregnancy subplot last minute just to keep you motivated. (laughs) Neo is completely broken as it sinks in that the love of his life never even existed. So what now? Smith motions behind Neo, where two doors have appeared in a rock wall. One red and one blue. Smith has turned back into Morpheus. You take the blue door and you wake up again as Thomas Anderson with no recollection that any of this ever happened and it all starts all over again. Or you can take the red door and wake up as Thomas Anderson with no recollection that any of this has ever happened and it all starts all over again. But that's not a choice. You never had a choice, Mr. Anderson. Morpheus has disappeared. Neo stands completely alone in an infinite wasteland as the camera zooms out and we fade to white. So the uh, themes we explored were the rapture, uh, solipsism and nihilism. Thank you. Jesus. Jesus (laughs) fucking Christ. This is what you get when I mostly write one. Alec does one, you get hawk aliens. I do it, you get existential horror. (laughs) Existential nihilism and despair. Very nice, gentlemen, very nice. That was depressing. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened when Stuart writes. Yeah, Stuart was like, Alec, I think I got it. And I was like, oh... Oh, God. <laughs> oh, you really do. So we added the Hawk oh. aliens and it just didn't yeah. quite gel. But, uh... The thing I find really interesting is that we both harvested 
a lot from yep, the re- was, reloaded exactly revolution stuff. And we also both ended on a kind of <laughs> kind of fake out, not fake out, but like a like a reset. Ending. Both of them are like we don't need any more. Yeah, I, th- I think that was very much in all our minds, wasn't it? We don't want the Zion Squid attack. Yeah, that's the thing is that all the all the stuff that we just basically don't like in Matrix, both of us fixed it. So nice. So the main meat of yours did feel very Inceptiony, which I think makes perfect sense, and it would have been made rather than Inception in your universe. So that makes well, even more yeah. Sense. I mean, you couldn't really follow up with Inception. It, it, it's, it's very much a, a sort of replacement for Inception. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You've got levels of reality and, and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Replacement for Inception sounds like a Matrix movie. <laughs> <laughs> and the flashback bits, you had a lot of... Um, this, is it the second Renaissance? It is, yes. very much. From we were the Animatrix. Stuff that, Bit yeah, of I, really, I really like yeah. the way you use the Animatrix. Because Animatrix is good in parts. Yes, yeah, it's absolutely. Really we even is. mentioned yeah. about the the like uh, the athlete element. Because that yeah. Is yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. Because it, like, I remember seeing the second Renaissance and being like, this is great. Fuck. Like, similar response to yours was like, fuck, that is dark as anything. Like, especially as like, 40, like 13, I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I found so, it quite disturbing. Yeah, I found it incredibly disturbing. I was like, why isn't this in the film? Yeah. Um, You... One of the the elements is pulled from the one of the video games. Yeah, the I MMO. pulled bits from uh, the MMO, uh, and, which is the Matrix, Matrix Online, Online. I yeah. think it was. Which yeah. is the canon continuation of, of the, the story. story. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know it's canon. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So also elements of like Bicentennial Man, a little bit of yes. robot, bit of Cloud Atlas. I kind of saw. Quite- no, when you mentioned your crappy dilapidated Zion, for some reason I just saw Dennis Leary walking around that little fucking underground. I love, so I love. I don't know why. But oh, that would have been a nice visual Zen- thing. Zen- we Zen- went Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> question for you, Jack. I mean, because uh, we were noting about how these are quite similar places. A lot of it's drawn from like chateau sequences and freeways and all sorts of things. And again, I, I noticed the chuckle when they said chateau and you were like, mm, yes. yeah, chateau sequence. Yeah, because nice. we all right, just, again, very much had the same opinion of what works and what doesn't work. And a good idea is a good idea, ultimately. Yeah, because right. usually we, we have the thing, as you uh, mentioned in previous episodes, where some of us just try and stick and s- fix it if you can in a certain way and we, other ones just completely abandon it, go off on a, a complete tangent. But this feels like a proper sort of, in a way... They're quite close, despite being completely disparate. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Like you said, we often get the case where one of you guys tries to fix the sequel and sticks close to it and fix the things that are wrong with it, but you use and adapt the things that worked, and the other team tends to go batshit and just goes like, it's Alien versus Predator now, ah, fuck you guys. I oddly thought that the Neiman Smith's bogus journey started off with the kind of fixing the sequel kind of vibe and then took a sudden turn to the left obviously and and, and went kind of batshit but you, like you said they both used elements i think your expansive extra cast kind of helped the the web surfers expansive cast kind of helped in in making it feel more different to the original but then i feel like neiman smith's bogus journey's twist at the end was a bigger kind of departure from the original and that had a bigger impact because it's so fucking depressing thank you yeah, jack is a broken man right now listeners like he he just like you can see his shoulders are slumped by a good two inches like he's just slumpy and everything so a quick question i have for neo and smith's bogus journey do you think the incredibly nihilistic depressing ending 
would kind of sell. I feel like nobody would recommend this movie to anybody else. No, no, God, no. The test audiences would sink it. Christ. But no, we are here to make good films. That's a good point. This audience doesn't exist, so we're just here to make the good films. I also think you've got to do something really bold with a second Matrix film because the first one is so It's such bold. a pull-the-rug film, isn't yeah. it? So you, yeah. Also, the end of the first one is so final. Neo now has total control of the Matrix. He can fucking fly, he can warp it, he can delete the agents, which of course they just gloss over pathetically and Reloaded. And so anything you do from that point where it isn't the fact that Neo runs his fucking place now makes the whole thing feel less real. Can we not I think that's where like, I wanted to go with that. Happy Neo fun time and just like <laughs> What's he's the just p- hanging out, having fun. Yeah. That's that's point break before the film starts. <laughs> Oh my god, we've all missed a trick. That should have been How the fucking sequel. Into point break. Oh my god. He gets angry, he sees Smith run away, shoots his gun in the air. Oh god. I, true story, for a short period I was considering having like an avatar of death in it as this abstract. Then I realized I can't do that because of Bill and Ted's bogus journey. <laughs> I've seen it would work really well. I've seen Keanu Reeves act up against an avatar of death before. Where uh, oh oh shit! And I thought the kind of ironic thing was that you have layers upon layers of matrices, which is Inception esque, and you guys got Nolan. Interesting. Not really. I only had the two really. The um, Matrix and the real world wasn't real either. So it was only two levels. Yes, really, that's an Inception. I suppose so. But Inception yeah. they go a lot deeper, don't they? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You didn't go too deep. So I do have one question for you guys, the web surfers. Why wait 10 years? Why go from 99 to 2009? I'd say the simple answer is technology. Yeah, basically, um, the, the thing is, if you look at something like The Dark Knight, Chris, and this is obviously a great example of this with Christopher Nolan, he talks a lot about um, using lots of different uh, filmmaking techniques in order to kind of fool the audience's eye. So I think one of the examples that he uses is the uh, sequence in The Dark Knight where there is uh, the helicopter crash where the uh, the Joker henchmen shove uh, the two lines across the, uh, the street. The cables, the, yeah. The cables and the helicopter crashes. And he says, but there is essentially, that is a mixture of a real helicopter being shot for real in a real street. Then there is also a CG helicopter. There's also a model, a, sm- a smaller size model helicopter crashing. And all of this is all combined together in such a way that hopefully, and I would, you believe it's one thing. And essentially what we're trying to get, I'm trying to get at is that by that time, the kind of early 2000s kind of lust for just doing everything with CG is abated. And it's become, because of directors like Christopher Nolan, it's become just another tool in the toolbox, which we would hope would mean this along with his skills as a director, especially at that point, arguably um, we would be able to produce a film that felt very much like the modern version of The Matrix was in 1999 combining the best of current CGI with the best of uh, kind of practical model effects and and making something that was genuinely believable and grounded and realistic I mean in the same way that The Dark Knight feels very grounded and real even though there is CG in The Dark Knight a lot of people think, oh, there's no CG in the Dark Knight. There's loads of CG in the Dark Knight. It's just very well used. And, and the same with Inception. There's a huge amount of CG in Inception. But and then also, Nolan does crazy things like... He also really had that hallway spinning. Yeah, we really had that hallway spinning. And it's things like... And when we were thinking about it, we looked at it and was like, well, that's really kind of Matrix-esque. So that, that's why 10 years. Because it. I think if you'd have made it... I know we're kind of divorced from reality a little bit within the sequelizer thing. But if you'd have made it, I think at any point... 
pre-2006, 2007, you're just going to have all of that. Episode yeah. 2, Episode 3, Matrix Reloaded, you know. So, yeah, we, you, need to, you need to move things, things on along. And people's, it's not even just technology, it's people's opinions about yeah. using the technology. So that's the reason why I put Nolan in charge, because effectively speaking, as much as, okay, case in point, in my own review, I've stated this, I don't like Interstellar. I think it's an amazing visual treat, but it, every time Nolan comes up with a new film, the public say, whatever it is, I'll be interested in it. It, it will be a visual spectacle. It will be something amazing. It will push the boundaries and how films are made. You know, like Dunkirk pushing with, I mean, not always the most appropriate thing in terms of how he shot it, but at the same time, and Tom will go at great length about how, you know, all the different um, uh, troubling with using certain cameras and certain environments. But the idea is that he's going to produce a huge spectacle that pushes the boundary of cinema. And to be fair, The Matrix did that. The, the 1999 Matrix, it did fundamentally, I'm not saying it fundamentally changed cinema and how we see things, but it, again, along with Fight Club, made some really big impacts oh, of how people, yeah, exactly. So we want that sort of, again, recreate it 10 years later. And not to go too much in depth with it, but I would love to have seen it, you know, in the same way that some of The Dark Knight was shot on IMAX. I'd have loved to, you know, I would envisage from a DOP and visual perspective that this would be very much a film that was shot largely on IMAX in the and same way. And he'd go to the fucking Himalayas. And he'd go, and he'd yeah, shoot, he'd, he'd he'd go, go to town yeah. with it. Yeah, so um, so no, we'd see it as being this big visual spectacle, and um, yeah. I think the other thing to for anyone that's wondering about Christopher Nolan, uh, the other thing that should be abundantly clear by our pitch is the fact that obviously he's an expert uh, for right or wrong playing with time in his films. He is obsessed with temporal narratives, yeah. and we think that you know obviously this isn't a memento but he would do a really good job of obviously it's not possible to show that with just reading out yeah. the, but the way that these segments would be intercut yeah. and, and back and forth would would feel really kind of interesting and and a bit like you know with dunkirk it, it it's it's kind of not confusing but it's it's a it's, you know, it's a fright for the fragmented narrative that would be really interesting to watch and and um yeah would hopefully provide a really hopefully have a cake and eat it and have a backstory and a f- current story at the same time fair enough Fair enough. Well, I did really like the way you guys cut between the kind of, like you said, the the second renaissance, the kind of origins of the pods and everything like that. And it's a it's a cool kind of way of introducing that to an audience who maybe doesn't know about the Animatrix. I assume the Animatrix doesn't is, come out in this universe. Exist. Interesting. This no, is the this Animatrix. Is, this is the best bits of it. No, no, we wouldn't have that. The Animatrix that. is all part of what became Reloaded and Revolutions, much like the, the game did as well. None of that exists. We've got the Matrix and then this. Right, okay. And the idea enough. being that, we, yeah, because we, we'd, we'd want that backstory to be explored only... In within, cinematic form. In, in cinematic form, yeah. So this is like blowing people's minds then. That, yeah. That, that yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Because you've had the narrative explained a bit through Morpheus in the first film, like, well, we think this. And it's like, now you fucking know what it is. And it's also very, obviously, the the, the illusions and allegories within it are obviously, especially even, I mean, even in today's 2017 society are even becoming even more prescient, but hopefully in 2009 still have that slightly forward thinking you know well, smartphones I mean Siri up. Siri and you know smartphones started up but Siri isn't a thing you know we've now had an iPhone released the other day that has a bionic neural net processor and I was I was my, my, my commander my, data yeah or my <laughs> my Cyberdyne Systems Corporation's kind of thing was like, oh my god it's kind of bionic neural net processor great Apple that's brilliant recognise your face as well so it knows how to kill anyway I really liked how you explored the kind of concept of humanity and the, the rights thing and all that sort of thing. And on the other side of the coin, I thought it was a really, really bold choice to go for that ending and the fact that Neo is still questioning it right until the very end. And I think you would have the audience questioning it as well. Neo is like, there's really nothing? And even when it gets to the red and the blue door, you're like, oh, cool, okay, it's going to be a red and a blue door thing. And, it's like, and it's the same thing. You're like, oh, fucking hell, okay. 
it's like a double, triple twist almost. And I think you would have the audience right on the edge of their seat. And then you've been building up the red blue thing the whole time, addressing people as red pills and blue pills and all that sort of stuff. And then you just fuck you, take the rug from under them. Red and blue means nothing. Nothing means anything. You're all fucked. <laughs> Glad you paid to see the movie. <laughs> I really like the references to, you mentioned Cypher as well, which I thought was a nice little yeah, callback. Nice in in, in the MMO, they were called Cypherites, which I thought, felt was a bit on the nose. Because yeah. uh, like this one guy becomes, a, even though nobody really knew yeah, who yeah, he was. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I really liked also how you just had Zion turned into a shithole, even more than it usually is. Because it would never made any sense to me in the films. Like, oh, Zion's absolutely massive and it's got huge cogs, and you're like, but yeah, how is it so big and the machines don't know it's there? I especially liked the Anderson impressions as well. Of course, thank you. We we rehearsed for a while. <laughs> really, the, the writing this, there was a lot of it is inevitable, Mister Anderson. <laughs> I wrote out all the inevitables at one stage, and then I realised it was such a horrible kick in the teeth to use it in the ending, I had to keep it in. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I really liked how you had the question of the, is the real world worth the fight? Which I think is something never really addressed, and was just like, yeah, we all want to learn the truth and be pulled naked and hairless out of a gross pod and just live in destitution, when we could just be living fine, normal lives in the Matrix. And then none of that matters. Why I made Zion so horrible. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You make it really awful and bring the question of I wanted the audience to think that before the characters did basically nice nice okay so I'm gonna have to render a verdict and it's really really tough like you said you went in two very different directions you also pulled a lot of things that worked because reloaded isn't terrible and the fact that it's kind of got fairly good reviews and stuff shows that it's got stuff that works and you guys used that really well in both pitches I think but I really liked in particular the web surfers. Oh, thank Christ. Thank you. I mentioned the Philip K. Dick thing. That is totally what sold it for me. And the fact that you then said the Animatrix is not a thing. I'm like, ah, that's an, that's an extra cool thing. Thanks, so Jack. Congratulations, web surfers. Thank you. You are now... Even in the score. Yeah. Even Stevens. I'm not going to lie. I don't envy you most weeks, Jack. As season two has been going this on, we're like... might be the toughest one I've ever had to decide. And I had a draw in season one. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, damn it, I'm not having any draws in season two. I, ha- I have dignity. So if people want to follow your Philip K. Dick-esque shenanigans on Twitter, Mr. Stogden, mm. how would they do that? If those fine people wanted to do such a fine, fine thing, uh, they could go to Twitter or Instagram and look for Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. The Z, Z is for... Zion. Yeah, Zion. Yeah, Stog Zion, which is a, a construct of your mind. If you want to read my reviews, there's theredrighthand.co.uk. Uh, if you want to see the films and web series and things that we make, please go to cheesemint.com and uh, watch all the stuff we do. It's good stuff. Speaking of watching stuff and people who make films and whatnot... Mr. Tom Martin, how can people follow you? So, uh, yeah, when I'm not sequelizing, uh, I'm a filmmaker, cinematographer, and creative director of a production company called Forward. Uh, so we make uh, sort of commercial and branded content films. So if you'd like to visit our website and see the films what we have made, some of them are award-winning, I'll, I'll let you know. So if you want to visit the website, that's uh, weareforward.uk. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of fairly cool behind-the-scenes stuff and all the... Uh, lots of black-and-white shots of you with shoulder mounts and stuff yeah lots of sexy photos of me with uh, cameras uh you can go to uh at made by forward on all of those and if you want to follow the kind of shenanigans i get up to when i'm not having cameras on my shoulder you can go to at tom martin underscore 89 on instagram that's me mr 
Alexander Plowman. Twitter, Alec underscore Plowman. Picks or it didn't happen. And if you'd like to find me on the internet, uh, don't bother. There's no point. Right in the... Oh, I'd like to follow Stuart's box. nihilism. You can't. It's nothing. We call this Stuart's nihilistic. But, but at least it's a fucking ethos, dude. Jack, you're on the lines as well, right? I'm JLW Chambers on basically everything. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that bollocks. I host a few other podcasts as well, mostly about comics. And if you want to message us on Twitter, we're at Sequelizers. Or if you want to drop us an email, we're Sequelizers at gmail.com. And coming up... As Matt so tunefully hinted at, we're discussing one of the earlier terrible superhero movies, even though there have been plenty since. I would argue there have been worse Superman films since, but this was the first bad one. Superman 3 from 1983, starring Richard Pryor. (laughs) That was a casting choice right there. Tells you a lot. I like Richard Pryor, but mm, maybe Mm, not. We'll discuss that next time. On sequelizers. Bye, everyone. Bye. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be nihilistic this week. Damn it. I may have just given away the facts. I'm not at all.